Hello and welcome to Let's Harmonize. I'm Shane Garrison. I'm Mickey Ferguson. And I'm Cal Vandegrift. And today we're going to be talking about the history of diabetes. All that and more on Let's Harmonize. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. No, I, I can't hear you very well, and I think it's because you're not talking, like, into your mic. For the purpose of today's discussion... Significantly better. Okay. I'm just going to start over. For the purpose of today's discussion... That's James call. <laughs> Hello? I'm doing pretty good. Um, how are you doing? For the purpose of today's discussion, diabetes can be broken down into two main categories, type 1 and type 2. Type 1 is characterized by the body's inability to create insulin, usually through the process of an autoimmune disease destroying the islets of Langerhans or damaging the pancreas in some way. Type 2 is characterized by the body's poor response to insulin. Type 1 is genetic, and type 2 can have genetic influence, but is usually caused by poor diet and unhealthy lifestyle choices. Diabetes has been a heavily studied condition for a few thousand years. Physicians have been aware of diabetes for a long time, as early as 1552 BC. Egyptian scholars documented cases of diabetes in the Ebers papyrus. Mickey, I'm sure you've heard of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For which the proposed treatment was an elixir of bones, wheat, grit, grain, green lead, and dirt. What? <laughs> Good luck selling that idea to Novo. That's, that's disgusting. Yeah. The term diabetes came about probably a little before 200 AD and was introduced most likely by a Greek physician, Areteus of Cappadocia. Areteus also had an interesting description of diabetes, and this will perhaps give you some insight into what they thought was happening in the body. He described it as a melting down of the flesh into urine, with an incessant flow of urine as if it were coming from the opening of aqueducts. It's, hmm. I mean, he got one of the symptoms, that's, right? That's, that's true. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's really all they could like see. But right. Like, just, the, just like your constant organs crumbling into urine. He was probably out. like describing the emaciated look that they would type one patients with diabetes would. This is very true. It's an interesting thought to think like if your body's wasting away, they would think that it just becomes urine. Yeah. Like. Okay. It's I can not, see where they're coming from now. If you had no medical knowledge, it doesn't seem that far of a reach. Right. Yeah. So he, he also likens it to the symptoms of an adder bite, which is a type of snake. The snake bite causes immense thirst, much like diabetes is known to cause. Arteus did not differentiate between insipidus and mellitus, but historians assume he's mostly referring to mellitus. And also, for the purposes of this, we're not really going to be talking about insipidus because it's, it's, a, it's a completely totally different, different mechanism, totally different physiological thing. I don't even know why they call it diabetes. Uh, but symptoms were similar. Just because of the, the polyuria, probably, mm -hmm. and the thirst. Arteus also was, like I said, most likely the originator of the term diabetes, which means to pass through. However, I wonder why his other names for the disease didn't catch on, like diarrhea of the urine, <laughs> the thirsty disease, and dropsy into the pot. I Those don't know last two are brilliant. Dropsy into the pot is pretty good. That's, That's like a band name. That's like a hipster band name. <laughs> you said he's Greek, right? Yes. How is that not like some like 17th century English parliamentary thing? Like, well, dropsy in the pot. What, what? Well, the, the term from the Middle Ages, um, it was actually my favorite, the pissing evil. Oh. So that came out a little bit later. That's pretty good. So it's as, just a metal band. Name. It is. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty badass. So as you know, the characteristic sweetness of the urine of patients with diabetes comes from the excess sugar that is not being properly filtered in the kidneys and is passing into the urine. Throughout history, this has been one of the standout characteristics of the disease. And for some reason, everybody's trying to drink pee. 
Physicians have been diagnosing things for centuries by tasting urine. The only one that they've been able to seemingly diagnose correctly is diabetes mellitus. The ancient Indian physicians noticed the urine had the sweet taste and the tendency to attract ants and called it Madhumeha, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, or honey urine. If you were an ancient physician, would you be compelled to taste urine, even just a sip? No. I mean, what else are you going to do? No, I mean, not in the slightest. What if it smelled really sweet, like really good? Absolutely not. I don't think it would smell very well, but I mean, I mean, like I said, what else well, are you going to do? it's obviously exhibiting some kind of smell if it can attract ants. Well, maybe. Well, most right? of the time, the doctors would have their assistants do that. They wouldn't do it themselves. It's like a little <laughs> sip. It's like, hey, Johnny, out. Yeah. Uh, I need you to test this for me. Right. Give me a lab value. <laughs> so you guys probably wouldn't have been able to be this next guy, Thomas Willis, who coined the term mellitus, which comes from the Latin word for honey or sweet. A physician with Oxford University, he noticed his patient's urine was kind of delicious. Wonderfully sweet, like sugar or honey, he described it. He didn't put together that the urine was sweet because it was full of glucose, but like honey, mellitus stuck. wrong with this guy? <laughs> just, it was just his thing, man. That's disgusting. It's just a, just his thing. So, all right, so let's fast forward a little bit to 1869. Paul Langerhans, you know that word. Hey, hey. Yeah. He was only 22 years old and still studying for his doctorate, identified the cells that secrete insulin. However, their purpose wasn't elucidated until much later. Next, we've got Claude Bernard. This guy, honestly, the worst. This guy sucks. His contribution to the understanding of diabetes were more than nothing but less than something. Through many experiments on dogs, more so through trial and error and process of elimination, was able to determine a lot about how the organs of the body process sugar specifically. I don't want to get too much into the details of his experiments because they're a little graphic, but ultimately he discovered glycogen and its relationship with the liver. He was such a fan of vivisection, which is the live dissection of animals, that his wife ended up divorcing him upon arriving at their home to find he had vivisected their family dog. Oh. He's okay. the worst. Yeah. That's awful. Here's a quote from him. The physiologist is no ordinary man. He is a learned man, a man possessed and absorbed by a scientific idea. He does not hear the animal's cries of pain. He is blind to the blood that flows. He sees nothing but his idea and organisms which conceal from him the secrets he is resolved to discover. This man is self-absorbed within himself. He's a real Jeffrey Dahmer type. Oh yeah. The modern scientific community has the general consensus nowadays that animal experimentation is necessary for the advancement of human science, but can always be done humanely. It can always be done in a humane way, and I'm of the mind that if it can't be done humanely, it shouldn't be done. What's the deal with always, like, why is it always the dogs? Why I do don't the dogs know. Get That's a really good we're question. Talk, I mean, the yellow fever thing, like, why did he have right. to lap up the black vomit? I think they I were mean... just more, like, plentiful. They were probably easier to take care of at the time, and we didn't realize the physiological significance of mice. Yeah. That probably came about a lot later. How prevalent were feral dogs at this time? I mean, pretty prevalent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They were I guess prevalent. it was pretty easy to round up some feral dogs. Um, yeah, because there's reports in I think the 1900 Olympics, which are terrible, but I think it's the, either the 1898 or the 1900 Olympics. Like literally during the marathon race, several of the competitors got chased off the course by feral dogs. Yeah. I, I think I watched a video on that actually. It was really interesting. It's a, its own story. It's great, but no, feral dogs super common. So not surprised that they'd round them up for science. Yeah, if you haven't you seen Lady and the Tramp? What? <laughs> the dog catcher? There's tons of feral dogs in Lady and the Tramp. Yeah, the Tramp but... himself. He's a feral dog. Uh, okay. He was cool. He, he was pretty anyway, good. I haven't seen that in a while. It's, uh, it's good. Not the new one. Like, there's like this weird live-action one. What? 
Not like yeah, they made the like beast, a, they right? made a live no, action. yeah, they made like a weird live That's action horrible. Lady Why? in the Tramp. Disney's gonna shut our podcast down, but um, <laughs> I, yeah, and it's got this um, it's so bad. Yeah, they have like real dogs, but they, they like CGI mouths on, obviously. Oh god, yeah. like like Beverly the Beverly Pets one. <laughs> you remember that movie? Beverly Hills Chihuahua? Oh yeah, that one. Not that good, no. Uh, what was the GI Joe one for guinea pigs? You know what I'm talking about? Wait, oh, G Force. G Force. GI Joe for <laughs> guinea pigs. Bad? Have I been living under a rock this entire time, or do I just have a very it's, good? It's really funny that you bring up G Force because movies. sometimes as a joke, I'll like tell my wife like, "Hey, let's watch a movie," and then I'll pull up G Force and I'll like play it in like a random language. <laughs> play it in like Portuguese. Like, that's, yeah, it's like Portuguese or Korean or something. Oh my god, she hates it. <laughs> Why? I don't know. It's funny. And I'll like fast forward to like a random part of the movie and I'm like, oh my gosh, remember this? She's like, I can't believe I'm married. Yeah, she hates me. Anyway, oh so uh, yeah, so this guy, Claude Bernard, he was he, he was awful. He took a weird pleasure in the in this dissection of live animals. His wife actually ended up divorcing him in 1869, and she went on to actively campaign against vivisection. Previous people we've talked about were able to perform animal experiments humanely, like your boy Stubbins Firth. We remember him. And now, a word from our sponsor. The next guy we're going to talk about, a little iffy, but still better than Claude Bernard. So, 1889. Oscar Minkowski came from a family of incredible brains and even more incredible mustaches. His brother Herman was a mathematician who eventually mentored Albert Einstein. Ooh. And his son Rudolf would go on to become an astrophysicist. His contribution, I think, was considerably more significant than Langerhans, and I'd be interested to know what you guys think and whether he got the credit that he deserves. His great contribution to the study of diabetes came about when Minkowski and a colleague, Joseph von Mehring, were discussing the role of free fatty acids in fat absorption. Doesn't seem like it's really related to the topic at hand, but we're getting there. So, discussing this problem, von Mehring describes a procedure called ligation, which in terms of surgery is an experimentally induced injury to study the effects. So von Mehring caused some sort of experimental damage to a dog pancreas in the quest to determine the role of free fatty acids. It didn't work. That didn't yield any results that they were looking for. So Minkowski's like, dude, just tank the pancreas out. Von Mehring says, I bet, and brings Minkowski a dog that same day. Minkowski and von Mehring successfully extract the pancreas from the animal, and while the following study of the dog yields little worthwhile information in the study of fatty acids, the dog develops diabetes. Within a few days, Glycosuria, glycosuria, is that how you pronounce that? Glycosuria? Glycosuria. Glycosuria, okay. Glycosuria, polyuria, marked thirst and severe hunger, weight loss and asthenia despite sufficient diet. Minkowski was intrigued to say the least and he depancreatized a few more dogs and noticed the same result. He even did a pancreas partial transplant and saw the delay of diabetes until he stole that dog's pancreas too. Wow. So he does get credit for diabetes research. In fact, there's an award in his name given by the European Association for the Study of Diabetes annually for outstanding work for a younger investigator in diabetes research. But to me, that's not the same level of admiration as having like a part of an organ named after you, like the islets of Langerhans. Yeah. I mean, I will say that Claude Bernard, one thing that you didn't mention that Bernard did was discover the role of the pancreas within digestion. Mm. If he was studying the free fatty acid thing, he have to have that building block to even start the studying in the first place. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like, you know. I mean, I'm surprised Bernard didn't come up with the whole figuring out pancreases are related to diabetes because yeah, he, he didn't was catch just that. Like, it's interesting though, he was considered not that smart by people that he worked with. 
Because oh, we really? just we just learned about Clobbernuck. Didn't he come up in like healthcare systems? Yeah, in, yeah. Like, That's the only our, reason I knew one that, of our classes. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, he was described by his mentor as not that smart. Not I, I forget the the precise wording for it, but he's an interesting character. He actually started out wanting to be a playwright, and he wrote a couple of plays, and people were like, "Yo, this is trash." And then he was like, oh. "Okay, I'll do science instead." That's tragic, um, pun intended. Hey, and he got really popular with Emperor Napoleon III. Von Mehring, Minkowski's partner, actually did the foundational research for what would eventually become SGLT2 inhibitors, like Invokana, Farsiga, and Jardiance. So now we're moving on to the big breakthrough, 1923, something so profound the discoverers were awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine, and this discovery would go on to influence the leading treatments for diabetes for the next 100 years and beyond. I'm talking about insulin. Around this time, there were actually a few scientists, Canadian, American, English, and perhaps more gone unnoticed in the annals of scientific mediocrity, who were on the cusp of discovering the right identity of insulin, the mysterious physiological gatekeeper for our body's precious glucose. They knew the pancreas was involved, thanks to Minkowski's canine revelation, but no one was sure how or in what capacity. The mystery continued until Frederick Banting, a young Canadian surgeon, and Professor John McLeod, a biochemist, teamed up with Charles Best, a bright young medical student, and later in the collaboration, a talented chemist, James Collop. Together, like the four musketeers, began experimenting with grinding up dog pancreas and injecting a purified version of this into diabetic dogs. Just like the musketeers. Yeah. (laughs) Immediately, the results were astounding. Blood glucose levels dropped considerably within a very short time, a matter of just a couple hours, and after they enhanced their purification process with the help of James Collop's chemical expertise, they were ready to try it on a human. On January 11, 1922, in Toronto Hospital, the first ever prototype insulin is injected into a human, 14-year-old Leonard Thompson. The first injection did not go very well. The child became even sicker and developed abscesses at the reaction site. Undaunted, the team of scientists regrouped and purified their compound even further, improving the quality, and a few weeks later tried it again. The rest is history. Leonard's blood glucose dropped from 520 milligrams per deciliter to 120 milligrams per deciliter in 24 hours, and urinary ketone test came back negative. If you're familiar with glucose levels, the highest goal after a meal is 180 milligrams per deciliter. He was at 520. Yeah, that's really high. So his numbers were almost three times that level. If you convert that to A1C, which people might be more familiar with, his score was about a 20%. Mm-hmm. Pretty high. This man was about to die. I, he, he was. And uh, he was actually able to live another 13 years with regular insulin treatments, but he did eventually succumb to pneumonia at the age of 27. Well, that seems kind of unrelated, I guess. Potentially. Uh, also, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, when you have immuno issues already, I don't think it helps yep. to oh, attract yeah, of course. pneumonia. Yeah. Lilly Pharmaceutical got wind of this and partnered with Banting and Best to release Iletin, the first insulin ever commercially produced in 1923. The same year is where the controversy strikes. Dun dun dun! The Nobel Prize can be awarded to three people, or to organizations with unlimited number of people such as Red Cross. As you may have noticed, the team that discovered insulin was four people. So the Nobel Prize Committee compromised and awarded the prize to two of the four people. McLeod, who ran the lab and contributed the least, and Banting, who at least deserved it. Banting was furious. He thought the prize should have included Charles Best, the medical student who was a major contributor to the study. That's a name I've heard. Yeah, we, that sounds familiar. Yeah, we've heard of Charles Best. I don't know about his other accomplishments, but if you want to... 
I think he's the Yahoo most known answers. for this. Yeah, for this. He was he was probably like the least appreciated because he was a medical student, of course. And James Collip, who without his medical purification technique, they may have never gotten a pure enough insulin to be safe for human use. Banting eventually decided to share the monetary reward with Best, and McLeod, not wanting to seem selfish, did the same and shared his winnings with Collip. Over the next few decades, insulin remained the forefront of diabetic therapy, getting purer and better every year. As you know, for many years, insulin was derived from pigs, giving us porcine insulin. Now we have recombinant human insulin that is secreted from artificially augmented yeast cells. And we have five different types of insulin now, varying in onset and duration to give patients with diabetes full therapeutic coverage for their fluctuating blood sugar levels throughout the day. Nowadays, we have so much more than just insulin for treatment of diabetes types one and two. Patients with diabetes can expect to live healthy, normal lives and treatments are improving every year. The lifespan of a patient with type one diabetes born now is about 80 years. Prior to the advent of insulin, that life expectancy was three years. As we've established, treatment of diabetes has changed dramatically. From humble beginnings of ground up bones and wheat, now we have metformin, TZDs, SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 agonists, not to mention the life-giving insulin which has given type 1 diabetics the opportunity to live a normal life without which their outlook was bleak to say the least. Despite the progress we've already made, or perhaps by virtue of, I think there's still much more to learn about diabetes and insulin. With the advent of monoclonal antibodies in the past decade and our knowledge of immune disease constantly expanding, outlook for patients with diabetes will continue to improve and there is always more to discover. Very good. Now we just need to tackle how to actually get the insulin into people's hands because having worked in a community pharmacy, some of those insulin prices are absolutely ludicrous. Yeah, definitely like, overpriced, that's for sure. I mean, it is expensive to synthesize, don't get me wrong, but... At some is it? point, yeah, uh, it can is be. Is it still expensive to synthesize? We've got yes. cell factories pumping this stuff out. Yeah, for certain kinds it is, because there's still like uh, free insulin projects going on where they're trying to figure out how to synthesize these proprietary insulins. Really? And you know, basically cut the cost by a quarter to a fifth. I just feel like the ye like yeast cells are like the cheapest cells available to anybody. It's just like, oh, it's just yeast cells. Make it at home. But you still have to have the QC. You still have to do all this because if you get the like let's say you mix up insulin glargine and insulin aspart that's really bad or if it's not pure enough it's really bad that's why all these free insulin projects have been going on for a decade or more and they're still not ready to to publish what they've made is it really that big of a deal like if you just gave someone glargine instead of aspart or something like that i mean like other than the fact that they might not have the same length of insulin treatment is it really like that big if of a deal if you don't notice I mean, they're going to notice. How? A lot of people Until they take, go into diabetic shock. You no, know, people take their blood glucose every single day. It's just part of... They're supposed to, Cal. I mean... They, they don't always do what they're supposed I, to. I you come know from that. A fam I come from a family of diabetics. I mean... Yeah, and did they check it? They did. Every time they every were supposed single, to? That's every what they time, said. Every time, 100%? No, I can't say for certain. But I mean, I'm just saying, it's not going to kill you if you take Glargine instead of Aspart or something like that. That's what I'm saying. I think, we need to, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree here. I think maybe. there's a very big pharmacological difference. I mean, sure, it's not good. I'm not saying, like, just take whatever insulin you want. But I'm just, like, I'm just thinking in my head, if this happened in a, in a pharmacy, is it really, I mean, is someone going to get fired over that because someone died? I don't think so. Well, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, they might get yes. fired, but they're not going to die, is my point. Oh, okay. <laughs> you were just like, if someone dies, are you going to get fired? It's like... Yeah, probably. Yeah, but I... On the old pharmacy technician test, if you got the uh, calculations wrong for insulin, it was an instant fail. What? Yeah. 
because it's that important. Yeah. Why do you think we have so they many did. different kinds? If it wasn't important, we, why would we spend the R&D money? I mean, of course, but I mean... Therapeutically, though, uh, like closely related insulins, probably not super significant, but what about something like Degladec? Completely. What about like a long I mean, yeah, sure, of course. It's going to have different effect. Yeah, quality of life would not be the same. What's the price of like aspart compared to... I don't know the price difference, like that, but I don't think I've ever seen an insulin... Like, if no one, if they didn't have insurance, I don't think I've ever seen like an insulin pen that was less than 80. Yeah, they're pretty expensive. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music. <laughs>